Hey there, my name's Doug Bird and welcome to Something Fresh, where we talk to adventurers, athletes and progressive thinkers. On this show, we aim to create an environment where you, the listener, can escape, explore and learn through interesting people who have achieved great things. The idea is to help people grow, become inspired and through that, encourage them to take that first step towards doing something about it. If that's not up your rally and you're simply here to listen to interesting conversations, then that's cool too. Thanks for tuning in. Now's the time to sit back, relax, and enjoy the journey. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Something Fresh show right here on Wild Air TV. My name is Doug Bird, and it's really good to see all of you tuning in. I know we're normally coming to you at about 8 o'clock every evening, well, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, but of course, today we're doing things a little bit different. We're having a, a lunchtime chat with the legendary Greg Menard. Can you believe it? I'm really stoked that uh, Greg is agreed to join us here this afternoon. He's a really busy man, a very busy man. Uh, a lot of us, I don't think, realize how much Greg has on the go in his life. Uh, he certainly isn't just a, a downhill rider. There's a lot more that, that the man gets up to. But for those of you that have been living under a rock for the last decade, I'm going to give you an overview of, uh, of who Greg Minar is and uh, the journey that he's traveled and uh, it certainly is impressive indeed. So I just wanted to go through his professional teams that he's, that he's raced for. So in 1990, he was racing for his local bike shop. In 2000, he moved to Team Animal Orange. 2000 to, 2001 to 2002, he raced for Global Racing. 2003, Harrow Lee Dungarees. 2004 to 2007, Team G-Cross Honda. That was crazy times, man. That Honda bike was absolutely incredible. It was like space age when we first saw that. And then, of course, he's to date from 2008 to uh, 2020 Santa Cruz Syndicate. So it's been one hell of a journey uh, for Greg, of course, named the GOAT amongst other nicknames. Um, it's actually quite funny here looking at, uh, looking at the nicknames that he's got. Obviously, GM, the Fresh Prince of Big Air, GOAT or Puzzler. So <laughs> quite an interesting conversation combination of nicknames there. So he's born and bred Peter Maritzburg and that's where he's going to be joining us from today. And uh, yeah, he likes to keep it real. They're always coming back, coming back to home base, so to speak. And can you believe it? He's also won a world championship title in Peter Maritzburg itself at Cascades downhill track. So hey, Doug, what's happening? Hey, Greg, how are you, man? Yeah, all good. eh? All good. Oh, looks like a pearl of a day there, bro. Yeah, it's beautiful. Probably the it's best time of the year to be at Marisburg. Hell yeah, man. It's like no wind, no real... It's, it's supposed to be... It's a, it's a like transition of the year, though, where things start to get a little bit dusty from a riding perspective and the, and the oh, terrain yeah. starts to change up. Yeah, it definitely dries up a bit now. And yeah, this is probably... Yeah, this is definitely the best time to be and I haven't been here for so long around this time of the year. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to yeah. be home, except uh, we can't be riding in all that forest behind us. <laughs> yeah man i guess it sucks hey you can almost like reach out and touch it but you you can't quite get there but it will all change on the 30th really excited to see that we can ride and run and all those types of good things so no doubt you boys will be laying down some laps yeah i think um i think the forest is going to be pretty busy as soon as lockdown ends i think um next friday yeah i'm pretty sure there's going to be a forest party going on <laughs> Are you are you going to be the chief organizer of the forest party though? I don't think there's going to there's going to be a need for a chief. I think every guy's got a mountain bike in the area is going to be in there. I think everyone's just itching to ride that. Yeah. Now. 
for a thing to write. But um, so you've been super active on, on social and so many different channels over this period. So thanks so much for joining us on, on Wild Air TV here, man. Really do appreciate it. Um, but those that have been following you during lockdown probably know. But for those that don't know, how have you been keeping yourself busy and fit? Because, yeah, you know, there's still potentially racing to be done this year. What's been, what's been your focus during lockdown? Uh, I've spent a lot of time, I'll show you, on this thing. So I've been Zwifting a lot. And uh, yeah. barring that, I've just been uh, trying to maintain. It's really hard not having a full gym. So I've got a few makeshift um, exercises and balance balls, like this thing over here, this balance board, and um, all kinds of little exercises I've been doing to try and keep uh, – you know, keep fit and, and just kind of maintain. I think we're going to have a later start. So it's it's really hard to keep um, the intense training going up. So right now we're just kind of ticking over. But still, um, on the bike, it's still quite intensive. But more on the gym side, just laying off a bit. Yeah, no, for sure. But in, in terms of Zwifting, though, you've always been someone that I, I'm not too many, so not too aware of how many people know. I guess you do share it on, on your social media channels. But you've always spent a fair amount of time on your road bike, though, in the build-up to seasons and training to get to get that mileage in. I know a lot of South Africans might be surprised by, by hearing that. But, um, yeah, how, how much of your training in your year is dedicated to just that all-out, like, brutal strength training, endurance stuff on the road bike for the downhill season? Um, well, it's also, I ride a lot of road bike because in, in Maritzburg and like January, February, it's still quite wet. So it's hard to get into the forest and make sure you're getting consistent training. In. Um, so I ride a lot on the road. Um, and then I mix things up coming into March. So um, it's, uh, yeah, I would say I'd probably spend two or three days a week on the road bike um, and anything from two mm. to three hours per session it looks like you got a really cool crew there as well um and i mean you've always had a cool crew in maritzburg but the lads that join you on the road bike now charger has been mixing it up a bit i see brad cox from time to time he's like a really cool crew of people in maritzburg that uh, you guys train together as a group yeah i think we you know there's uh there's not a lot of distractions in Maritzburg, and um, I think which makes it really good for sportsmen to just focus on training and and just making sure it gets done. You know, it's easy to skip a day here and there, but um, I think when you've got guys to meet up, you you feel a little bit bad to miss a session. There is the thistle though, which can kind of trip you up now and again. Yeah, the thistle can thistle can throw a curveball here and there, but also toughens you up. So. Yeah, that we use that as boot camp. <laughs> yeah, to to kind of weak uh, to weed out the weaker the weaker runs and the litter, so to speak. Um, but so, Greg, you were talking about now the fact that you've you've not been back in South Africa and Maritzburg in particular during this time of year for for many many years. But talk to us a little bit about why you keep on coming back to the borough. I mean, it's. Uh, it's a great place to grow up, man. I must say, I absolutely love growing up there. There's all sorts of different things to do, but having traveled the world and seen what you've seen, what keeps you coming back to be in Maritzburg? Well, I've got all my family here and, um, and, and we've got the bike shop as well. So 
I've always liked it as a training place. I mean, you can see the forest behind me, so it's it's really easy to get out, ride, train. There's downhill tracks, there's enduro trails. Um, it it makes it makes training really convenient. And uh, as life gets busier, yeah. it's, it's really important to still uh, prioritize your training. And I think it 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 definitely is a lot easier when you're in Marisburg. So I've always enjoyed being here. I like the way it's low key and. Um, yeah, I think we just blessed you with great riding. How have you managed to to balance that aspect of of your your kind of business and working commitments as well as your training commitments as you've grown in your career? Because you know, of course, everyone knows your achievements on the bike, but off the bike, because you've got a lot of other things on the go. I mean, I don't know all of what they are, but I mean, you're involved in in Rush Sports. Um, some of the chats we had years back, you were, there's some other potential business interests in the U.S. You know, how do you how do you balance that aspect of of your of your life? I mean, your bike shop as well. There's a hell of a lot going on for you. And um, how do you piece it all together? I struggle. Um, I think my ADD helps a little bit. It's, <laughs> uh, um, I, I, I do start early. Like um, obviously now in lockdown, it's 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 quite refreshing to to wake up at six seven o'clock and and then start training. Normally I get up at about quarter past four, so my days are quite long. And um, that sure. um, yeah, it's just longer days. But um, it is it is a juggle. It's a, it's a tough juggle, a juggle that I don't think I've quite mastered yet. But it's I do enjoy the challenge of it and trying to stay on top of it all. But um, I do I have kind of found a little bit of peace been uh, more relaxed in this lockdown and, and kind of soaked it up a bit. Mm. So, I mean, are you happy to tell us a little bit about the different business things that you're involved in? Or is that like a bit oh, of top, uh, top secret stuff there? <laughs> no, it varies. I mean, there's, uh, there's obviously Rush Sports, which does a distribution for Maxis and Santa Cruz in South Africa. Um, the, uh, there's property stuff we work on locally and abroad as well in the UK. Um, the bike shop. I'm just trying to think what else. There, there's quite a few other things. Uh, Misa Hora Jewelry. And, uh, oh, uh, yeah, a lot. There's a lot. There's probably too much going on. But it's, uh, I like to keep busy and it does definitely keep me busy. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I'll keep going with it. So it's a, it's really, it's, it's a great story to tell. And the reason I want to unpack it just a little bit is it's because I don't think enough athletes in South Africa and even around the world for that matter, prioritize what life's going to be like after their, their racing careers. So your moves into the business space, I assume were deliberate and that you were looking beyond your career as long as it's been. And the fact that you're still up there and competing for world titles, um, is is fascinating in itself but how deliberate was that structuring of what you've pieced together so to speak from a business perspective was it like this is what i'm setting myself up for post racing and and i'm um, sticking to that or did it kind of happen by accident it, well when i go into my 20s there's always talk of what are you going to do after racing so i figured that business would be something exciting i was quite enjoying um the business that i was looking to get involved to then um, getting thrown into the bike shop when my dad got ill was kind of a, um, it was also a bit premature than what I wanted, but it, it was something that happened. And I was quite thankful. It gave me a different understanding of retail and how that works. And uh, so I didn't expect my career to go on for this long. So 
I think I kind of rushed into to the business side, which made me really busy. Uh, but in saying that, I think it, I've managed to juggle it pretty well. Uh, I have put a few things off in the last couple of years, just so I could focus a bit more on racing. You know, I feel like this is my last strong push into it, and I really want to focus as much as I can on it. So I, I needed to uh, pass a few things over to to others, but. Um, yeah, I think it. I, I think I, I rushed into it a little bit in my mid to late twenties, and I definitely think I could have held off for at least another five years before jumping in like I did. But I guess it's all just a learning curve, eh? Mm, yeah, no one, no one has it all figured out, eh? You got to kind of take it as it comes in many respects. In terms of your, in terms of your team, from a business perspective, like who do you have that's around you to support you in in your day to day side of things? Ah. Uh, well, in each business, there's people that are running it. You know, I can't be there all the time. So, yeah, I think on the business side, we've got guys on, on all fronts. Like at the bike shop, we've got Craig Paul that runs the bike shop here. Um, and, you know, there, there's all different guys and, and, and people in different businesses that, that are running, you know, the day-to-day operation. But um, for just, I mean, just myself as, a, as an athlete, there, there's so many people involved from, you know, I, I took over the management of all my sponsors, so I still head up that but uh from wow. training i've still uh run with stefan gerard who i've trained with for mm-hmm. for many years i've added um alan milway in to do my strength training um we still work a lot with lawrence von lingen and uh yeah. as uh, a Cairo or body conditioning i would say um laura robinson has come onto the team so she helps us from that side onto the team and then locally, I'll use like uh, Garth Oliver and mm-hmm. uh, someone like that to to help me with all my uh, injury management and everything while I'm at home. So there's a pretty big team around me just just on a day to day, trying to make sure you know the racing side is all covered. It's always uh, been incredible to see. Where there's always been such a good vibe though, in and around your team. From, from as far back as I can remember. I remember I'd, it must have been a national champs. It finished it finished at, at the bottom of Cascades, but not where it finishes now, like next to, it was more up towards, there's that nursery. If you're going up Town Bush Road, there's a nursery to your right. So it used to be a downhill finish there. It used yeah. to come in like down a firebreak road almost into the finish with some. And I, I remember you were racing Team Honda at the time. And it was my first experience of seeing you race live in, in Peter Maritzburg. And the one thing that struck me, though, was just your team and the stoke and, like, just good vibes. I mean, that was that was quite a while ago, though. That was probably mid-2000s around there. No, could have been. I can't remember. I'm old, bro. Yeah, mid-2000s? Yeah, yeah. And uh, how have you managed to keep up that momentum, bro? Because, I mean, without a doubt, whenever you're around your team, you know, it's always everyone's enthusiastic. They're happy to chat to people. That's that's probably been one of the things that I've that I've noticed the most is you guys are always happy to chat to guys and you know for you personally signing autographs and how you remember people's names, bro. I don't. It's it's fascinating. Um, I'm not very good it, on the name side. I must be honest. I get that wrong very often. Yeah, um, I, I yeah. think it's you know we just love what we're doing and and I think that's what's kept me in it for so long. You know, it's yeah. it's kind of tough. We we in a way that um, we've been here for so long. But at the same time, every time you're racing down a or, or in an event, there's just 
there's just such a good feeling after racing and, and pushing to the limits and being back on a downhill bike and getting to the speeds you do. So uh, that, that makes it kind of fun. Um, and yeah, we just really enjoy it. I mean, we're fortunate enough to be able to push our careers as long as we've had. And I think uh, finding a home like the Syndicate's been super helpful. I think Rob and Kathy created a really um, different team. Something that uh, allowed us to, to get a little bit loose when we wanted. And as long as we're still racing good things, we're fine. So um, that that definitely helped lengthen my career as well. Just being on yeah. a, a team where there, there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of room to move and in terms of your character and your personality. One thing I've always been interested about in the Santa Cruz as uh, a syndicate team is is how each rider is on obviously the same platform, but you guys all race and ride different helmets, different gear. How's that aspect of things managed? Like in terms of your overall team structure, you, you agree that, cool, these are the bikes we're going to ride, but from there, is it up to you as to, to who you bring on board? Do they have to reach or, or pay certain benchmarks that's managed by the team? How does that dynamic work? So Santa Cruz just have a guideline to what what categories are open. So we have helmet, uh, wear, clothing, shoes, all open categories. So we can then reach out and, and find our own sponsors or clothing that we like or helmets or shoes, and which is kind of nice because it gives us preference into choosing stuff we want to use rather than having to use a certain brand. Yeah. And in terms of in terms of the overall like, longevity of the of the team, that's, I would say, not a common structure would you say that's part of why it's been sustainable for so long yeah i think it, it's definitely one of the reasons why it's worked and, and why it's been around for as long as it has and, and so successful as well as a team uh, uh i definitely think the structure that was set out initially from rob and kathy it's going to be hard to to maintain that going forward with you know with riders changing and new riders coming in and everything else but um i definitely think it was a, a platform where riders could excel you know, it's, it's easy to have a team when things are going well for riders to excel. As soon as you have a, you know, you've been on the team for a few years, you have a bad year, that's when you really need a good base of a team to be able to uplift the rider and get him back on track and, and to find his feet. Mm, for sure. In terms of in terms of that structure and the athlete side of things, obviously there have been some fairly big changes in the team a couple of years back, some young blood coming in. The boys have definitely stepped up. You're definitely leading the the charge there or keeping them under your wing, so to speak, and helping and helping them grow. Was that quite a big shift for you in, in introducing or at least having two two younger guys joining joining the team and you know, what was your what was your role there? Was it still just primarily focused on yourself or or were you committing time to to kind of blooding these guys in and, and helping them improve and get better every year? Yeah, it was a, definitely a big change having having new guys in. Yeah, I think it was important to have um, the structure that we had before. I think riders can benefit from it. You know, understanding this uh, more family-based structure where you 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 have this base of being able to excel, and if things don't work out, it, it's it's not a big big deal. Just you know, find your feet, and they'll you know try and help you figure it out until you can. Um, I think that was really good. I think initially it it was set out to try and um, kind of share the knowledge that I've learned over the years to the younger guys, um, but it, it's quite it's quite tricky when you're racing to do that and still compete at the same time. And uh, Steve was there as well as a 
like a, a coach. So Steve was kind of sharing his side. So I, I, I thought it was just easier for Steve to carry on running with it than trying to force what my view was and what, how I've taken to the sport and my, my idea of, of racing. The camaraderie within the group, though, always seems good, man. Like, you guys, I love watching I love watching the YouTube episodes when you guys release them. It looks like a hell of a lot of good fun all the time. But I'd imagine, you know, there's work to be done. How do you manage that balance between, you know, everyone's getting along and mates and so on and then needing to flip the switch and line up against the guys, essentially, over several weekends in the year. How's that process managed? I think it's important to understand what the sport's about. And I think if you can understand that racing downhill is not necessarily racing your teammate or mate, it's actually racing the clock. You know, you can Mm. all help each other to consistently all be better than, than what you could have been by sharing different information and knowledge on the track or different lines. But Ultimately, it's it's not really a race against each other because you still got to put it together in that race run, mm-hmm. which is probably a good thirty percent of the race. You know, it's um, that's where it really counts. So, um, if you're able to to help a teammate out with probably a better line choice or or something along the way, it's only going to help the team overall to be better. So, yeah, it's. Uh, it is tough, though, and it's a hard one to understand. But when you do, I think it, the whole team excels rather than just one rider. No, for sure. That, I think, speaks to your guys' overall career and that it's been it's spanned over so many years. I mean, to think that you joined them 2008, it's over no, 12 years now. That's an incredible journey. Um, and in, in, in your racing scenario, so the World Cup, for example, you catch a gondola, whatever it is, to get to the top of the hill and you're sitting there and you're warming up and Marshy's with you and, you know, you're in your space and warming up. Talk us through those moments, man, because I know, I know these are all pretty generic and interesting, boring questions for you, but what, in that, in that moment, are you, what's going through your head, your processes? Are you thinking literally every meter of the track lines, if it's wet, potentially changing lines, if it's dry? I mean, how much information are you getting pre-race within that time that you're up there and can't see what's going on? What's what goes down at the top? It's a a pretty intense time, you know, for myself and Marsh. You know, Marsh is making sure that that bike's 100% ready. Um, So he's got a lot in his mind going into it. We still know that gondola, and it's normally very quiet. Mm -hmm. We try not to have anyone in there with us because it's, it's, you know, you you don't really say much. Um, You almost seem a little bit rude to people because you you are that focused and getting ready for, for a race run. Once we get to the top, we, we set up and set up the trainer, and, and that's when I'll just put on my headphones and keep going through the track. You know, I, I break the track up into probably four or five different sections, depending on the track and the terrain. And so I just make sure I know every section, what pace I want to ride at, what kind of rhythm I want through it, uh, where the caution areas are, like where do I need to brake heavily, uh, where I need to back it off, where I want to push a little bit harder. So I go through my whole routine of the run. It'll probably be about a good four or five times up top. And then it's, uh, you know, my last bit of um, of warm-up is, is a few sprint intervals. So uh, once I get into that, it's I know I've only got like 15 minutes left before race run. So I finish up about 10 to 8 minutes before the start, roll around the top of my bike, make sure that everything's perfect just for one last little 
you know, if we need to adjust something very last minute, Marsh is ready to do it. Um, and that can also be a quite a tough time because if there's weather coming in or the weather's changed while we've been up the top, you know, we'll be choosing different tyre options. So Marshy's got to be um, pretty ready to do a Formula One pit stop and, and swap out wheels or whatever the case may be up the top. So it doesn't happen too often, but when it does, it, it's quite stressful. So let me just roll over to the gate and then Marshy just prays that my bike's 100%. And uh, I think he normally tries to look for a cigarette if he can, and he has one bottle <laughs> on the way down. And uh, yeah, that's that's what it's like. It's, it's quite an intense, um, intense time, really. So I mean, that that uh, that's pretty pretty standard procedure for you at every single race. But in terms of Maritzburg in 2013, we're going to bring it home because obviously, while their TV South African based channel, a lot of people from Maritzburg follow, like. Dude, that was mind-blowing. I mean, for everyone that was spectating that. But you were on the bike and you were the man making it happen. That, I, I remember, uh, I don't know, like, the, the correct explanations of it. But there's kind of, you come out of the long pedley section, you go over the big tables. At that point, you were transitioning through some fairly small gum trees. And then there was this big wooden, like, pallet drop. And then you kind of went into a gully before there was, it wasn't a like a very, like, vertical drop but it was like a long cobbled drop coming into the last couple of hundred meters of the trail and i remember there you were like point something of a second behind like i don't know if you could hear the crowd or you could hear the commentators or you knew where you were but somehow you went from being just back to in the last kilometer less of the track pulling it out and and winning and you flattened on landing or something i I want to take it back to that 2013 run because it's still clear in most South Africans' minds. Like, that was beast mode. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was going to be a tough race. You know, it's not often you get a race at home and it's world champs. Everyone wants to win it. So, um, And then you've got the pressure of trying to win it because, you know, you, it's right there. It's right behind me. Um, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, pretty, we're really prepared for the race. We knew we had a, a bike that... It was probably a little different to everyone else. Everyone else was trying to go to a 27.5 wheel bike. We stayed on 26 and and tried to work the wheels more than anything else on the bike. So we kept the suspension all the same and we just tried to make the wheels as light as possible. So Maxis actually made us some tires which were the DHR tread pattern on a XCO casing tire. So the tires were super light. And um, this was for another project, but we kept them aside. Thought it would be a good, uh, good time to try them, and they worked really well. The only problem was in that last gully that you're talking about. There was a rock section that we were trying to jump the whole thing, mm. and I kept tagging a, a rock towards the bottom. So I went through probably four or five rims in practice, just breaking wow. the rim and then um, just limping into the finish. You know. And Marshy kept coming to me going, well, can you not take another line? And I was like, well, not really, because I can't really see, you know, it's quite blind coming in. So I don't think I can. And to the left, there's more rocks. And uh, slightly to the right, it's, it's, I've only got like 30 centimeters. I'm probably off track. So there was no way to change the line. So I just said to him, don't worry about it. Just put some sealant in. I'm sure we'll be okay. <laughs> and uh, in that run, it was, it was hard because the top, the top we had to work quite hard and uh i kind of counted it by possibly over braking in most corners and and 
powering out of each section. So by the time I got to the midway of the track, I was pretty tired. And I didn't know if I had the legs to hold that sprint. It's a long sprint. And, you know, you've really been racing for two and a half minutes. So it, it's pretty tough. So there are a lot of options. Guys going to drop a seat post and everything else to, to sit down through the pedaling. I decided to keep my seat regular height and just try and stomp it through and, and power that. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was just a, a tough race. I ended up puncturing that rock section, but I made it across the line before it went flat. So that was lucky, I guess. But uh, yeah, it was close. It was, what, less than half a second, I think, in yeah. the win. So um, it was exciting. And, and to see your One Life crew at the finish there literally exploding through the fence line, that, uh, that, uh, that must have been incredible. Yeah, they always seem to overdo it probably before the race. So they don't last too long after, which is good. Uh, but they, uh, they definitely have a good day. They miss the, the World Cups and, and World Champs coming here. Yeah, for sure. Oh, look, I hope it does come back. There's always talk of it uh, potentially resurfacing in the Western Cape. I don't know if we have the trails down here yet, but hopefully something can be developed over time. But, uh, I mean, in terms of your career and, and the length of your career, you've, you've, you've had some serious injuries. Um, uh, I recall you having a, like a bad injury where it wasn't a bone break, but it was your quad. I think it was on a motorbike accident that you've had. But the one thing that's always amazed me is how, how quickly you've recovered from those types of accidents. Talk us through, you know, what the accidents that have had the biggest effects on your career. I was listening to, I think, a chat with you the other night on your, on your platform. You're talking about your shoulder, you know, potentially if there's anything you would have done differently, maybe having soldier, shoulder surgery a little bit earlier than you did. But how have you managed that aspect of your career? Because it's hand in glove almost with racing downhill. The speeds, the accidents are big and injuries are going to happen. But you've managed it well. What's been your process there? Yeah, I probably have probably took a quite a simplistic approach to it not overthinking what what the problem was i mean i think uh, the worst like you said the the worst accident i had or, or the most serious injury was the compartment syndrome in my quad i mean i would, didn't have too long before they possibly would have to amputate my legs so i didn't know the severity of it at the time and it didn't really bother me too much afterwards um trying to get my quad to work again was was quite tough i think i had the operation. I got out on my birthday on the 13th. So I had the op probably on about the 10th of November. And it was probably only in like six weeks later did my quad muscles, was it able to like contract and work. So yeah. it's, it's quite, that, that, that was a little bit scary, you know, sitting with Garth and at EAP and trying to shock the muscle to get it to work again. Um, that's when it kind of, that's, that's, probably the scariest feeling I had when you're using every bit of strength and energy you have to try and um, uh, flex your muscle and you just can't. So, um, But as soon as it was able, my quad started to work a bit, I totally forgot about everything else and just focused on rehabbing. And I think I'm, I'm quite a, intense that way that once I've set my mind to something, it's, it's quite hard for me to stray from it or to do something else. Um, yeah, I think rehabbing sure. has definitely played a big part. I think I've rehabbed pretty well after each injury. I think that's that's super important. And the mental aspect of it, though. I mean, I suppose your what you're saying now, the injury on your on your quad. I mean, that was on a motorbike, but still, you know, in your crashes off your DH bike, you've had some big big ones there too. 
how have you how have you processed those because i've only been riding for 6 years and i've probably had about six proper crashes and i'm still mentally trying to process the first one i had like how how do you get over those and get back to pace i i haven't really um i don't ever think it you know once you you get back on the bike i've totally forgotten about the crash i mean obviously you got memory of the injury and recovering from the injury yeah. i think the last big injury i had was a acl and meniscus so um in my left knee um but it's yeah i mean you crash so normally those big crashes scare you more than the smaller ones but the smaller ones are where you get more injured so um we always kind of we we battle to forget those bigger crashes but those are the ones you normally walk away with a couple of scratches and bruises and not too bad yeah Yeah, it's crazy, man. Well, yeah, it's been phenomenal how you managed to recover from all of those types of injuries, uh, injuries, but also, you know, saying they're scary times and trying to get your leg up and functional. You think uh, you look at the the journey of of Brooke McDonald and his and his turnaround there. I mean, that's a flipping remarkable story. And that's just, that's just as I was speaking, I was just thinking of Brooke. I mean, yeah, yeah it's uh, he's he's done exceptionally well. I mean, he's he's such a tough guy, and to see him battling the way he is. but also persevering at the same time he's he's an incredible guy for sure so in terms of the uh, in terms of the youngsters in the in the team um obviously guys are pushing hard trying to find their pace i would say um i don't know perhaps it's an uneducated observation but luca pushing really hard year before last getting some good stuff maybe this last year taking a bit of strain also dealing with in- injury in terms of your team structure though um from an athlete's perspective from the outside at least it looks as though there there's a kind of a safety and security and that the team's not going anywhere you know your sponsors aren't just going to walk away from you that that they're in it for the long haul is that uh, is that a deliberate part of the the overall team structure so that you know people feel that they that they're looked after I suppose I'm, I'm probably answering my own question but how's that aspect of the team managed yeah i think it's been, it's shown over the years you know when riders have been injured you know the there hasn't been any um the team hasn't just left them high and dry they've supported them through the injury knowing that the what we're doing is a is a pretty risky sport so i think it's um it, it is comforting for an athlete to know that the team backs the rider and that's why probably the the the, the riders don't change that often in the team mm-hmm. i think once um Santa Cruz and and Rob have got their own rider and and they're within the team i think they look after them really well So in terms of that team structure if someone wants to get a girlfriend like when Luca got started dating in London did he have to come and ask for permission or is it kind of whatever it's all good <laughs> uh, it's all good. I mean our team's a bit funny within the team because we we always own um, housing situations rather than hotels it does get a bit tricky at times but generally I think it's as long as your your mind's focused on racing all's good Yeah man. So talking about now your 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 rest of your year. I mean it's hard to to peg it anywhere. Um but in terms of you keeping in shape and and trying to keep your eye on some sort of goal. Um what are you working towards in terms of in terms of your training? Are you like in base base mode training again or you just kind of ticking over daily mileage keeping up your strength well, to we don't, we don't know what to train for. We haven't got a calendar yet. So yeah. Um, we know that everything up to june possibly july is cancelled so yeah as if we we kicking over again but we've done all our base miles we've we started working you know um we went through so many phases of training you know um, 
the the heavy, the heavy lifting in gym. So it's we're not quite sure. We're just really waiting to have the schedule before we make the next move. I was going to say you need to ease up on the gym there, man. Your upper body's looking like you're getting a bit a bit heavy there. Too many bicep curls with with charging. Too many beers. Hundred <laughs> percent. So. I mean, you always love to have a lot of fun off the bike, um, especially in your home turf there. What is what does Greg like to do to to kick back, relax, other than other than drink a beer? You know, you mix it up on the golf course, surf sometimes. Um, yeah, well, the golf course is just uh, it's literally two hundred meters away, so I, I do enjoy a bit of golf. It's um, maybe the more mature side of of me coming out. Uh, it, it is tough. I, I find the challenge of golf really interesting and, and trying to wrap my head around consistently hitting the ball is so hard. Um, and then, yeah, I love surfing. It's, uh, I think that's my, my big passion. And then obviously motocross as well. I still ride a lot of motorbikes. So um, got a garage full of bikes. I was ripping up the garden uh, a few days ago on one of the mini bikes. So I still nice. spend a lot of time on motorbikes. And I think, uh, I think deep down I'm still just a kid. <laughs> Fair enough, man. I said to my wife the other day, I'm way too young to be 38. It's uh, at least the way I feel. Um, in terms of uh, other things, you've done done one or two other things, mixing it up. You've done a couple of doozy canoe marathons. That's uh, that's yeah. always an interesting time. Sven, Bruce, and, and a bunch of others. You always, when are we going to see yeah, you doing the, it? The back doozy was water? really cool. You know, it's, it was just another challenge that we wanted to do. And it's such a big event in this area um, that it, yeah, it was nice to do. I mean, my my grand's brother was had won the doozy a few times, and I'd always said to her that I'd I'd have a go at it, and and uh, she actually gave me a stopwatch. So that was one of the uh, motivations of of doozy as well. And so I've done the doozy, I've done the roof of Africa. Um, I don't know what other events I would end up doing, but it's nice to mix it up every now and then. Comrades, mate. Yeah, you know, I do run quite a lot. I run once a week, um, but I max out at about 10Ks. So it's going to take me a little while to train for comrades. Yeah. So going going back to um, the training side of things, what is a what is a normal base or base training block look like for for Greg in the off season leading up to things? Uh, let me try and think. So Mondays would have been, a, I think, about a 10K run. Uh, then an hour and a half in the gym. Tuesdays, Tuesdays I do about 70Ks, 65, 70Ks on the road in the morning and then ride motocross in the afternoon. Wednesdays, back running, do another 10Ks and then uh, another gym session. Thursdays would be back on the road bike, do another 65-ish, around two and a half hours. Um, Friday would be mountain biking and then gym in the afternoon Saturday uh, either road bike or run and then Sunday so, so really not not all that much face time with trail necessarily it's more I mean it's just... it's really hard in that time like December January it's really hard because mm. the forest is all clay based so as soon as it rains it's you need a day or two to dry so it's pointless trying to plan a uh, a couple of weeks training when you don't know the weather, you know, and it's so unpredictable in, in, in the middle of summer. So, you know, now it's really nice. Like the further I go in my training, the more mountain biking I'm doing. So that's kind of nice. And, you know, like come March, there's 
it's a lot drier in, in Marisburg, so it's um, it's easier to keep to plan your training rides around the forest. Um, we've got a couple of questions that have come through here. Um, one of them is, can you ask him why he specifically got a, a British passport? I think he gave quite a few people a heart attack when you put that out there, bro. <laughs> Everyone was like, what? We've lost him. Well, it was just something that, uh, you know, my mom's, my mom's English, my grandfather's English, and um, I just had never really taken the time and things have changed i meant and then i just applied and got my passport so um yeah we we're messing around it was quite interesting though swearing my allegiance to the queen nice yeah it's handy the green mamba can only get you so far man it's uh it's definitely a uh, easier so that was recently like legitimately when you're posting about it that we finally got that passport like recently you've been yeah i got it last road. year like in december She's like, so you've been struggling through your career with the old Mamba. Yeah, it has, I mean, it's not too bad. I mean, obviously, we become a bit of a visa expert working with the South African passport. Yeah. But, um, yeah, once you, you, you've got everything in place, it's, it's quite straightforward. So I had a little bit of a chuckle of uh, your most recent post on Instagram um, highlighting when you used to ride BMX back in the day. <laughs> That must have been such a cool journey, um, you know, through the development of bikes, or rather the progression of bikes over the last over the last five years, moving from twenty six to twenty nine, um, and and playing such a pivotal role, I would say, for Santa Cruz in that place, in, in that space in particular. How involved are you, and from a Santa Cruz point of view, in the development of bikes and the and the geometry of things in terms of your feedback and how all of these bikes get brought to life? Yeah, I mean, the, the V10 was really interesting. I mean, you look back and you always felt like those bikes, you know, felt so amazing in certain ways. You look at the footage and you absolutely are way too big for the bike. And, you know, everyone was scared to push the boundaries of, of wheelbase. And I think we, we're kind of reaching the, I think we're really close to, to reaching those, the, the max we can go on swing arms and the, the furthest we can go on, on the front wheelbase. So it's, I think we, we reach there, but you have to kind of push it too far to, to know where the, the boundaries are. And at least that's for now, you know, who knows in, in the next couple of years, if, if things change or suspension changes or something else, maybe then you, you do go back to the wheelbase, but it's, it's really been, um, it's really been a interesting um, journey with Santa Cruz and, and developing the 29 V10 and, and then redefining it to what it is today. Do any of those principles from the DH bikes kind of, or the, uh, the ideologies or philosophies trickle down to the other bikes in the overall portfolio of Santa Cruz? Yeah, I would think they do. Um, we don't really have much input on, on the other bikes. So, um, but I would imagine that that, that does happen. One thing that I've noticed pretty recently that's awesome to see in Santa Cruz obviously doing it as well is that as you start to move up in, in frame sizes now, your chainstay lengths are starting to adapt or your rear triangles are starting to adapt with that, with that increase in size, which is, in my view, also being a really tall guy, like an, a, literal, a literal game changer. Um, where do you think the, the limit's going to go? Because, I mean, it's ultimately you're trying to create an extra large, which fits a fairly broad spectrum of person or a large or a, or a medium. Do you think it'll ever get to the point where you will be able to actually get like, I mean, you know, you can buy custom bikes now, but it's not affordable. Do you think, do you think that's possibly where it's heading down the line? 
I don't think it's going to head to like custom build. I mean, it's really hard to do a custom build out of carbon. So, yeah. um, and maybe that's something that an aluminium company is trying to push at the moment, but I don't think it needs to go too far. I think the right way is, is growing the bike with the rider. I mean, it's, it's pointless keeping the, the, um, the swing on the same length from a medium to an extra large. I think it grows, everything grows together. Um, it's something that hasn't always happened, but like you said, it's starting to happen now. And I, I definitely think they've seen that with, with downhill and downhill racing, how um, the bike, the, the wheelbase has to have grown with the size of the bike. Mm, yeah, for sure. We've got a question that's coming through now. I'm asking about your the training aspects So spending so much time in the gym and the, and the road in your off season. How do you keep yourself sharp on the downhill or the trail aspects of your of your program, so to speak? Um, I don't really. I, I only slot down and then probably from about the end of Feb, I start riding a bit of downhill. And uh, it's it's always, a, it, you know, it's always a bit tough. We, we don't have a great downhill track, um, but I, I find it, it's good enough for me to get a good feel on the bike and, and get comfortable with riding downhill bikes again. Uh, so I try and spend... At least, uh, I probably don't ride as much as I should, but at least go out once every two weeks on a downhill bike. Um, nowadays, it's so easy to ride a trail bike sure. and have a good feel on a trail bike. So, you know, if I'm doing a couple of hours um, out in the trails, it's you're practicing the very similar skill and it's back to practicing the basics of braking, cornering, and, and just uh, very basic, basic things and techniques on a bike. So it's... Uh, I try and do that on every ride. So every ride I, I go on, there's always a plan in place to to train and and to to try and practice certain techniques and but very fundamental things. Yeah. So we've got a a question here. It's probably not easy to draw any comparisons between the two, but uh, that beautiful shiny Honda that you had. How does it compare to the to the V10? I suppose it's not apples with apples though. So it's you know that Honda was a really great bike. It. it it definitely was ahead of its time. It's it's still, you know, you look at it now and it's very, um, it's very futuristic. Like it, it hasn't dated at all. Uh, the the when I got on the Santa Cruz, that I felt like, um, I felt like the bike counted where my weaknesses were. Um, the suspension wasn't. The suspension just was, was uh, a lot more forgiving than the Honda. The Honda didn't have as much travel, and the bike coast a lot better. You know, in the Honda, it, in the gearbox, it ran an internal chain, and then you had an external chain to drive the, the gearbox, and um, that had a lot of drag on. So every time you went pedaling, you weren't really gaining momentum coasting. So uh, although the Honda was really good for its time, I excelled once I got into the Santa Cruz. Was it was it was it rumor or did it actually happen that some people back in the Honda racing days stole a gearbox, like stole a gearbox out of? Because that was like it, the internal gearboxes up until that point were like a mystery. Yeah, we we had bikes stolen. We didn't have any gearboxes stolen. Ah, okay. Was that yeah. so? That was it. Bikes were gone, but the gearboxes were out already. Yeah, yeah. Pretty crazy, man pretty crazy to think about how people are keen to try I know, it, it, was, it was really tough for the mechanics i mean every day having to put the gearboxes back in the bikes take the night off every day and everything was recorded it was 
it's just a different level of of um of racing well not racing of of mechanics and engineering and the way they they took control of everything it was it was it was very different for sure uh, so next question coming through from young Jasper Barrett how do you structure a practice at uh, at World Cup so my well first of all uh, yeah, you need to learn the track so um if it's a, a new track that I haven't been to I always take the first two runs to just stop and suss it out and, and try and figure out where I need to be, what line I need to be on. Um, and then I start to try and uh, join the sections up together. And uh, then I pick up the pace a little bit. And that's normally towards the end of the first day. And I try and go on pace on that first day. Because once you lose a bit of track speed, it's it's really hard to gain it over the next, over, over the Saturday or the second day's training. Um, second day is... Uh, just understanding what's changed in, in, in the practices before. You know, we'll have another couple hundred riders before we practice again. So um, just trying to see where the track's changed. And again, just work on one or two finer details before qualifying. And then in qualifying, on, judging on how that went and where there was time lost, it would just be, um, you know, you'd only get an hour of practice or an hour and a half. So... <laughs> You really only have two runs to absolutely make your mind up where you need to be. So it's, again, not necessarily changing a lot of section, but just uh, maybe fixing up or neatening up one or two areas. But, you know, it's it's so hard once you're in, in the race and you're trying to find the best line and the, and the fastest line. But, you know, there's a lot of guys who just take a more simplistic approach when on the track. And, you know, the main line at these World Cups now are super good. So that you know, you'll see some riders who just get into the main line and start attacking on it from quite early on in practice, and you'll see they'll carry that momentum through to the Sunday. Mm. And in terms of one thing, it's always been really interesting, though, and it's something that is well known, you know, to anyone that follows downhill, is that you never look really like you never look stressed when you're on your bike. Your flow is incredible. It looks like sometimes it's happening in slow motion until you go through a timing point and you're like, whoa, shit, he's two seconds faster. Um, and, and your line choices, you know, in race runs, you, you, you're often riding lines that are quite different. Um, is that a case of analyzing other lines that people are taking and, and looking to be different wherever possible? Or is it a case of you're riding, you see it, you immediately know it's going to be a certain way, or do you literally sit there and time it out and say, cool, inside, outside, faster, one second, slower? I think you get guys that get caught up trying to ride different lines just to be different. I think it's it's if you're, feeling, if you're not feeling very comfortable in a section, you try and find a line to, to kind of sort that out and make you feel comfortable. Okay. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's not often these days that the lines are, are that different. Um, you'll see guys, some guys coming in on different sides of the track in different sections. But um, I think now that the level's picked up, if you took the racing back 10 years ago, there's a lot more variation in line. I think now the, the main line is pretty damn good. Mm. Yeah. I was chatting to Johan Portheater the other night, and we were talking about, uh, obviously, the World Cup Series and World Champs, and he was also talking a little bit about IXS, the IXS Series, and he was saying that there, there, there are a lot of tracks in the IXS Series that are, in some ways, more challenging or more diverse than, than, the, than the World Cup Series. Why, why do you think UCI tracks are sticking to 
the tracks that they do and they don't mix it up more. I mean, it was great to see DH going to the States again. Um, but, but why do you think we don't see more changes every year with the p potential introduction of two, two new tracks a year, for argument's sake? Yeah, I think I think the riders would welcome new tracks. It's it's not up to UCI, but more the the guys who are bidding or the venues that bid for the World Cup. Uh, we can't go to a place where there's no bids for World Cup, so it's kind of a tough gamble. Um, there, there's a lot of great tracks all over. I think they've the UCI try and and at least get a, a decent mix on the tracks that they do go to and try and advise to to get certain things done in a certain way. So, yeah, I mean, you can always find a tough track anywhere, but it's also, you know, those those uh, easier tracks are sometimes harder to race. It's when everyone's going fast, it, it makes it a lot tougher to race. So it's because um, the track's easier doesn't mean the racing's easier. Mm, and, uh, for sure. It actually goes probably the opposite way. When the track's super tough, it, it gives gaps in the field. So the result is probably a lot easier. Um, and that, that could also possibly be it. Maybe UCI are trying to keep the racing tight and close. Um, when they do go to a more raw track, the, there's a lot of bigger gaps between riders and then possibly not as exciting. Oh, man, it's, it's mind-blowing, the increments in, in between, the time increments between you guys at the top. It's yeah. mind-blowing, man. Absolutely mind-blowing. And sometimes when you're watching on Red Bull TV and they don't have quite have their, their time splits accurate or they don't come up, you're like... Puzzling, man. Um, question here from the guys at Tigerberg Mountain Biking Club. Uh, Post-racing, are you ever thinking of dabbling in uh, a third Cape Epic, possibly? Oh, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, I think it's a great event, and it's, they've done an incredible job of, of creating stage racing, putting stage racing on the map like they have. I think it's, it's got to be one of the premier mountain bike events to do. So I probably... I definitely wouldn't uh, say I wouldn't do one because I really enjoyed doing the two I did. So, yeah, I could definitely go back and do more. Give it a mix. So we, we've got someone that's uh, that's taking you all the way back to 2001 World Champs. Did the rock launch you – did the rock you launched help uh, with your overall result? I don't know if it did. It was a sure fun thing to do. Um, <laughs> I think if my chain stayed on, I might have – come a little closer to PD than I did, but uh, he got me about, I think, two hundredths of a second. But we were still quite a bit behind Nico. Nico really smoked the riders in, so second or third, it didn't really matter to me. But, uh, yeah, um, the, uh, that, rock, that rock up was good fun. Yeah. So talking about, uh, it's pretty interesting. You go online, you do a little bit of like traditional research, uh, looking through your nicknames. One of them is uh, the Fresh Prince of Big Air. Tell, tell us how you, you managed to generate or get given that nickname. Well, I think that came from Peter Graves, one of the commentators back then. Um, he was the original voice of mountain biking, and I don't know exactly how that came about, but uh, yeah, that's what it was. Classic, bro. Um, we've got a couple more questions here, and uh, we're kind of giving you a time check there. We've only got two minutes left, so this, I guess, will be, will be the last one. Um, guys asking if you're ever planning to go riding in India. <laughs> you know, I, I've heard there's riding in India. I haven't. I must say it's not on my radar to go and ride there, but uh, I've heard it's an incredible place to go and ride. So maybe sometime in the future when I've got a bit more time, I'll head on over. 
Yeah, man. So this, uh, this is from young David Morgan. He's an avid follower here on Wild Day TV, youngster, teenager. Um, and his question there, yeah. What would you say to someone who wants to start enduro or downhill but is too scared to? Well, I mean, that, that's quite a tough one. I mean, if you're too scared to yeah. start enduro and downhill, I mean, back in, in my era of starting to race, you, you did everything on the same bike. At least now you've got... Um, uh, you've got the options of creating a bike that's more suitable to the discipline. So, uh, you know, if you want to start, I mean, there's local races all over Western Cape, KZN. I think those are probably the two biggest areas in, in Enduro. I think Enduro is a great place to start. Gravity, gravity racing, is a, um, it's definitely a great feed into downhill. I think you can judge and, and see how you, how you cope and, and take it from there. I think if you look at guys like Martin Mays going into Enduro and then flowing over into down it can definitely happen mm, for sure well guys we're gonna have to wrap it up there now we're coming up to one minute remaining so greg i just want to thank you really very much for joining us here you're a super busy guy and i know you've been doing a crap ton of these over the last two weeks so i appreciate it man thanks for tuning thanks, in Greg. thanks a lot thanks bro awesome well uh, ladies and gents those of you listening in thank you for your time and joining us for this episode of something fresh we talk to innovators athletes and progressive thinkers uh, from myself, Doug Bird, stay safe, and we look forward to seeing you at the next one.